You can open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Please do that or look along on the screen. It would be most helpful if you'd go ahead and open though because we're going to spend a little time in the surrounding context just briefly as we begin. So Acts chapter 2. I'll begin the reading in verse 37. Continue to verse 47. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, He solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received His word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Continuing in verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together, and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me. Lord, we see here a truly remarkable example of the power of of the Holy Spirit to take the Word of God and pierce hearts and change people and create and call people to Yourself as the bride of the Son of God into eternal life, reconciled to the Creator. Thank You for the record of Your Word and we pray that now You would move us. We pray that where any of us need to be pierced to the heart for the first time or re-pierced, as it were, with repentance. We pray You'd grant that. We pray that You would show us now the glory of the Son of God in the truth. That You would unfold Your Word to Your people. That You'd show us by the Holy Spirit's power how Your Word is living and active. We pray that You'd show us that Your Son is the radiance of Your glory. To see the glory of God Your word says we should look at your son. And we pray that you'd help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our sermon series, each sermon has the same sermon text. The text that I read, verse 37 to 47. And each one of those sermons that are scheduled all have a particular aim. And today's aim 
is derived from verse 42. The phrase, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That phrase, in its context, is the focus of today's sermon. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. The sermon is titled, Learning and Discipleship. That's what you would have seen on the sermon card. You can see where it comes from. Learning and discipleship is derived from devotion to the apostles' teaching, straight from the text. And I want to begin by asking a question about the word they in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the question is, who are they? They are mentioned earlier in verse 37, the first verse of the series sermon text. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. So it's Peter's audience, the people who heard Peter preach the word of God. And they, in our text, are some of those who became some of the first Christians, the ones included in the paragraph. And so I want to ask questions like, where did they come from? What were they like? Who are they? Is there anything that can be known about them? Were they all the same? And if we trace it back all the way to the beginning of Acts chapter 2, to get the context, we can figure out much of who they were, a little bit more about them. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now most of us imagine Pentecost to be when the Holy Spirit was poured forth, and it was. But the background to Pentecost uh, has more than, there's background preceding the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the word Pentecost, penta, means five. It's 50 days, or seven weeks, seven times seven being 49. The next day, the 50th day, after Passover. So this was a feast, the second of the third, second of three feasts that the Jews would celebrate, and they would celebrate it in Jerusalem. And so you might expect that if there were Jews living elsewhere, when Pentecost was coming, they might return to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And that's what we find in verse 2, or verse 5 of chapter 2. That verse says, now there were Jews living or staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So as I said, these were men who were ancestrally Jews who had over time, generation after generation, settled in other parts of the world. And we find out in verse 8 through 11 where exactly these men were from. Look at verse 8. The men said when they heard what the Holy Spirit was doing, here's what they said. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents, that means they live there, of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. These people are some of those to whom Peter addresses the first sermon, and these people are some of those who are pierced to the heart, and eventually are some of those who were devoting themselves 
to the apostles' teaching. So what? Why or what is this entire sermon series about? This sermon series is a look at a paragraph of early Christians in hopes of seeing what church is all about, what we're for, what are the marks of a healthy church. And so I hope throughout this series today included, God will give to us a vision for who we are and who we should be, what he's called us to be. I hope that God will expose sin in us, myself included. I hope God will grant needed repentance and transform us, make us to become a bride that's more like the groom in his holiness. We want to be those people by God's grace. And so our sermon text for the whole series is a little paragraph about this group of people and what God had done in them. And this week, as a nation, as a whole, many people, including individuals here in this church, are hurting deeply. In light of this week's truly atrocious, racially driven events, we need to be careful to notice that the people devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and in the rest of the unity that you find in God's word in this paragraph were very different. They had a large variety of ethnic and cultural backgrounds. You don't know all the places probably that were read Phrygia, we don't know where that is, all of us, but some of them we do, and we know they're really far away and very different. Arabs, Medes, Egyptians, Romans, and so on. This is a very different group of people. Some of them spoke different languages, as the text said. They were born, as it said, in different countries. They were all Jews, but the differences were pretty remarkable. We know so because in Acts 6, there is a dispute based on ethnic issues. The group with the dispute in Acts 6 comes from the Hellenistic Jews. And we don't always know what that word means, but Hellenistic Jews are people who are Jewish. Their ancestors came from the people of Israel. But Hellenistic means they become so immersed in the Greek culture that most of them don't even speak Hebrew anymore. They spoke Greek. That's why you get the Septuagint translated. These are people who are very different. They were Hellenistic Jews. They lost many forms, many aspects of Hebrew culture. They were different. And their widows were being neglected, so was the charge. And the Jewish Jews' widows were not. So there is a massive potential for dispute and disunity. And yet, we read in this paragraph, despite the massive diversity among the people in the early church, there was unity. We see here God's vision for his bride already included this diversity on purpose. And we find the marks of a healthy church in the middle of tremendous diversity and variety. So why the focus on ethnic and cultural diversity in a sermon on the apostles' teaching? We live also like they did in a very diverse ethnically, culturally, and otherwise nation. That Every local church, including this one, finds itself situated in a context where the very desirable marks of a healthy church are threatened and attacked and undermined by a variety of factors, including racism. We are at risk, is what I'm saying. And God has created a world full of diversity. 
And he's ordered the world such that the diversity doesn't nullify unity. So this week, my hope is we will weep with those who weep. My hope is, as we have already done, we will continue to cry to God in lamentation for the evils that seem to hound many of those whom we love, Christians and non-Christians, image bearers, first people, human beings who are suffering. And so, I hope what will be some teaching, application of the truth of God follows now. In this church, we need truth-derived humility. I read from Tabidi Anyabwile this week. He said, we need, this is not a direct quote, we need to lay down our criticizing the rationale for others' grief and go love them, end non-quote. Discerning if pain is justified is less urgent in the immediate than first recognizing that the pain is real and then responding in love. We have to move towards and listen to those who are hurting and try on purpose to bear their burdens with them in every way that we can. We're all one body. We are all one body. We have one groom. And he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And some of us need to be honest about our weaknesses and ask for help. So praise God that he put all of us in a church. God makes plain that the church is very different from the world. And it is the teaching of the apostles, the doctrine, God's truth, that functions as the foundation not only for the unity in the diversity, but also of absolutely everything else about the church that's good and right and true. Without the truth, without the teaching of the apostles, the church would be just like the world. Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, sitting at the right hand of God. That's the truth that binds us all together in Christ. It's doctrine. It's God's holy, radiant word that gives life in the midst of truly a tragic world we live in. So where do we look together when tragedy and pain hit as hard as they have this week? We have people hurting. Where do we look? What do we do? We look to Christ crucified and reigning in heaven. Not a theological category, but the person on the throne ruling this world. The only foundation that won't disintegrate beneath us among this kind of tragedy and every other kind of tragedy, the only way is to build our life on God's word. So our emphasis today is that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So point number one, straight from the text, they were continually devoting themselves. Let me read you the range of meaning that this could be translated. Continually devoting. To adhere to one. To be as adherent. To be devoted or constant to one. To be steadfastly attentive unto to give unremitting care to a thing, to continue all the time in a place, to persevere and not to faint, to show oneself courageous for, to be in constant readiness for one, wait on constantly. 
So I hope and suspect that many of us feel our need for this sort of devotion to the truth. We are together to earnestly seek the truth of God. These people earnestly seeking the truth of God were a hungry people. They were eager to know the truth. They wanted to know who their God was, the one they had just been reconciled to. They wanted to know who Christ was and what he had done for them. So have we grown complacent with doctrine, with truth? Do we know enough already? Were these people, in our paragraph from Acts 2, devoted because it was new, because of novelty, it was so fresh? What about people who've been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years? Does it get old? Have we gotten complacent? Have we become unimpressed with the infinitely impressive. We are at risk of this. We are. Our sin. Knowing the truth, having the correct answer in theological category is not the same thing as continual devotion. It says continually devoting themselves. So when tragedy comes, what dominates your thinking? What comes into your mind? The circumstances of the world? What dominates? The inflammatory content on the media? Or the eternal life-giving word of God. The unchanging truth of our God. We have to build our life. Continual devotion. We have to build our life on the foundation of the word of God. So that when the rains fall and the floods come. And the wind blows and slams against the house. We won't fall. And if your house is in disrepair. If you have not been seeking to Build your life on the foundation of God's word, on God's truth. There's a king on a throne of grace for you. That's the name of his seat. That's where he lives. He can make you hungry. He can enlighten your eyes to see the truth so that it's not just information, but something you savor, something you live on. The king on the throne of grace can give you that. Ask him. And your siblings here in this place want to help. We want to help each other and love each other. We need to be reminded of the truth. None of us is sufficient such that when tragedy comes, we're automatically not struggling. We are. We struggle. We fight the fight of faith. Let's fight it together as they were, continually devoting ourselves to the truth and reminding each other of the truth. These people were continually devoting themselves to God's truth. We're going to talk more how to apply towards the end. But point two is the apostles' teaching. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So you have this diverse group, very different. Many of them didn't even speak the same language. They were born in other countries. So what is the teaching that this group were devoting themselves to? Well, a couple of questions. One, where can you find it? At that time, you had the apostles teaching the people and all of their teaching being built on the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of Christ. They didn't make it up. You can go and you can read what they wrote. They built it all off of what was, off of the word of God and the word of God from the mouth of Christ. Probably it was mainly oral right in the context of Acts 2. The epistles hadn't been written. These people were just converted and immediately became to or became that they were teaching, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
Where can we find it? The apostles' teaching is listed here. You can find it in the Scriptures. You can find everything in summary, the core of what was taught. You have access to it in the New Testament, in the Epistles, in the Gospels, in Revelation. We have the apostles' teaching. And a mark of a healthy church is continual devotion to the truth of God, the Scriptures. You have the teaching. We have the teaching. Do we have the continual devotion? If you don't, there is a throne of grace with a king who died for you and invites you to come with boldness, not on your account or your merit, but on his. Go to him. Ask for help. Confide in people. Ask for help. So what is the teaching? What's the subject matter? What's the content? What's it about? What were they teaching? Well, it is broad, very broad in some ways. There's teaching on how to provide for widows. I referenced that. There's instruction about church discipline, the Lord's Supper, marriage, divorce, parenting, finances, race, prayer, government, patterns of evangelism, instruction in pastoral ministry, eschatology, morality, and on and on we can go. The Word of God is broad and it touches every area of life and we want to bring everything about us under conformity with God's revealed wisdom. They did devote themselves to all of these things, the practical application of God's Word. But what is the main point? What's at the core? What's the summary? The answer is Jesus Christ. And we could go on all day showing that Jesus Christ is the main point of the apostles' teaching and therefore the main point of what God has to say to us. We will take a sample. Peter just preached a sermon in Acts 2 immediately preceding our sermon text. The subject of Peter's sermon is the crucified and risen Lord of glory. If you're uninterested in God's main message, you're uninterested in God himself and what he has to say. Peter concludes his sermon, Jesus is Lord and Christ. It was God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge for him to be put to death and raised. More examples, Acts 5.42, the apostles get in trouble one of many times for preaching the gospel. They're imprisoned, they're treated badly, understatement, and they're released. They told them, no longer preach in the name of Christ, apostles. Acts 5.42, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is a summary statement of their message. You could also think, what are the Gospels about? The life of Christ. And you can look and you can see the percentage of Christ's life broken down in quantity in the Gospels. And you can say, oh, the last three days of his life receive a tremendous amount of real estate in the Gospels and everything else is some, but much smaller. The message is Christ and Him crucified and risen. Romans, a long, detailed theological explanation of God's salvation in Christ. Hebrews, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the true and better priest, sacrifice, temple, and so on. Christ is the subject of the apostles' teaching. Acts 28 30 and 31, the end of Acts, Paul in Rome, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters 
and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. 1 Corinthians, Paul again, chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, last one. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So continual devotion to the apostles' teachings means continual devotion to Jesus Christ. He was crucified for our sins according to the predetermined plan of God. We read from or we saw from Ephesians 3. This was the eternal purpose of God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's God's main agenda is to send His Son for Him to be crucified and be buried and on the third day to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to take His seat at the right hand of the throne of God and call a people to Himself on the basis of what He's done for us. This is what God is all about. So God's prescription for each local church, this one included, including individual Christians, is continual devotion to the teaching of the apostles, which is mainly concerning Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk at the end about specifics and practicals about what that might look like in this church. But first, let's discuss the fruits of that sort of devotion. So point three is point one and two combined. What happens when human beings continually devote themselves and are mixed in with God's truth? What does God do? And we're just going to barely skim the surface of what he does. We'll break it into two categories. The first is the pursuit of the positive. We want to devote ourselves to his teachings to pursue the positive. And the second will be the avoiding of the negative. Pursue the apostles' teaching to avoid a negative outcome. First, pursuit of the positive. Do you want to have experiential communion with the living God? Do you want to know Him? Do you want Him to be more than something that you would read in a textbook? Information, intellectual category. Do you want to know Him? Do you want to know Christ? The Word of God says the truth of God leads us there. 1 John 1 Three, what we have seen and heard, the context, he's talking about Christ. Christ, we proclaim to you words so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John said, we proclaim the truth to you and the result is you have fellowship with God and with His Son. Do you want to grow in sanctification? Do you want 10 years from now to be different than you are today? Do you want to, I almost said victory, better word is obedience. Do you want to obey in the context of besetting sins and become more like Christ? Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, that's Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man 
complete in Christ. So admonition and teaching about Christ results in people being made complete, not little growth, complete in Christ. Do you want to be different? Put yourself under the teaching of Christ. Would you like to have more joy? Do you lack joy? Do you want the joy of Christ made full in you? There's no one as joyful as Jesus Christ. No one. John 17, 13, Jesus said, These things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Themselves, pardon me. Hearing the words of Christ caused their joy to be made full. Teaching Christ's joy in you. That's the way God uses His Word. That's the way He uses truth. And there's so many more that could be said. But fellowship with God, being made complete in Christ, having the joy of Christ made full in you, continually devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Part two, avoiding the negatives. Galatians 1.6. Paul, you know the letter to the Galatians. They were tempted to believe a gospel of works righteousness, to revert from Christ and go back to law-keeping. Galatians 1.6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Now, if you'll pay attention, that's an unusual way to talk. He said you're deserting Him for a different gospel. You're deserting the person for a different teaching. If you trade in his truth, you trade him in. The person of God and the truth of God go together. They are inseparable. The gospel is the primary, most bold way that God reveals himself to us. It's the clearest, the full color way that you can know who God is, is to look at Christ in the gospel especially. You could also look even maybe more soberly at Matthew 24, 4 and 5, Jesus in Matthew 24, is teaching his disciples about the second coming. Things are not going to be very good around that time. If you read that chapter, it's pretty bleak prior to his coming, which is infinitely not bleak. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Christ gave us a command. See to it that no one misleads you. And then immediately following, he gives the entirety of Matthew chapter 24, which is teaching about the second coming. And we must see to it that we're not deceived. The misleading here is resulting in eternal consequence kind of misleading. Not mistake, like lead astray into destruction. See to it that you're not led astray. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. So how does doctrine work in relation to real names and faces, people like you and me? People who are highly educated and people who are not at all educated. God means for us to ingest His truth. So how can we apply? I've got several applications. How do we move forward with learning and discipleship here? Far be it from me or any other person who stands here to give commands and leave a people having no idea how to obey them. No, no. So I'm not recommending new programs. I don't have 
brochures with several new things you can sign up for, though I'm thankful for some of those things. I want to talk first about hunger. The people in Acts were hungry. Peter uses the analogy of a newborn baby, saying that like that baby who longs for the milk, so you too should long for the word of God. I don't know if you've ever been around a baby who doesn't have any food, hasn't in a while, and longs for it. They are insistent. They will find a way by being loud enough and persistent enough and shameless enough to get the food that they want. they got to have it. Hunger is at the root of their continual devotion. We need to feel hungry. You should ask God to make you hungry. Where it's necessary, confess your slim or absent appetite for the truth of God. A good friend of mine recently had throat cancer. He had surgery, pardon me, to remove the cancer, and then he had radiation. Radiation fries your taste buds. He didn't like to eat anymore for quite a while because food lost its taste. He said everything that he put in his mouth tastes like cardboard, and so he lost much of the innate desire to get food. He had to rely rather on discipline to ensure he had adequate nutrition. But when the taste goes away, when the hunger is gone, there's a problem. So what about you? How are your taste buds? Do they feel, do they seem to you to be fried by radiation such that every time you ingest God's truth, it's like chewing on cardboard? It doesn't move you? Do the weighty eternal truths of God, which are meant to drop your jaw and worship, not move you anymore? This is a matter of urgent prayer. You should ask God for hunger. He is for you. Ask Him to put it in you. You could say, ask Him to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Ask Him to move you in your word. Make it a matter of urgent prayer. Find someone to confide in. Do not harbor that sort of lukewarmness, as Christ would call it. My friend's taste buds are slowly returning. He can taste now. He likes eating now. Things are changing for him. God can do that for us. Second application, humility. Humility in doctrine itself and our knowledge of it and humility in how we apply it. We need a big dose of the sort of humility that admits we are weak in certain areas, individually and corporately. We need to be able to admit it. One example I mentioned at the beginning of the service is how we practically apply the truth of God in relation to racial issues. Life is not only about race. The media would have us believe life is only about race. The media would have us believe that human beings are primarily identified by their race. And it's divisive. People are not primarily identified in God's eyes by their race. It's not irrelevant but it is not primary. People are made, every person in this room and every person on planet Earth are made in the image of God, created by God to be a mirror reflecting all of God's glory and there is zero disqualification for that same status based on anything race included. Christ is preeminent. Race is not preeminent. Christ is now, the supremacy and preeminence of Christ doesn't mean we should not work hard to talk about and help each other with and deal with issues that are not primary. 
In fact, the supremacy of Christ mandates that we must deal with all the areas of life that fall under Christ's lordship, including race and a thousand other things. But we need humility. We need humility to know that we don't have it all together. We don't have it all figured out. We don't love as well as we should. We need God's help. We need humility. Third would be learning. Sunday sermons are a good example. You should ask God, as I said, to put hunger in your heart to hear the word of God. Were you previously at a different point in your life more eager to hear the word of God on Sunday under a sermon than you are today? That's a matter of urgent prayer for all of us, myself included. Christ hates lukewarmness. Give yourself to your grace group. Give yourself to the people in the grace group with you. Give yourself to the ingestion of the Word of God so that when Wednesday comes around or Thursday, you can have good fellowship. I want to take a moment also under learning, third application, to talk about Scripture memory. We're talking about practicals. Practicals. I have a recommended resource for you, for you that many people in this church have utilized for a long time. I want you to listen to it. You can Google it. It's free, a PDF. It is called An Approach to Extended Memorization of Scripture by Dr. Andrew Davis. An approach. Not the only way. I like how he put an approach to an extended memorization of Scripture. The idea here is he's given you a how can I put one foot in front of another to do something as big as memorizing Philippians? That's what the whole PDF or his document is aimed at. I want to read to you, he lists in that PDF, objections, many of which I'm sure we have. Here they are. And he addresses them. I'm not going to address them. I'll just read them to you. So if you want to know what he says, if you feel like you have these objections, you can Google it. Number one, I don't have a good memory. Number two, it will take too much time. Number three, I'm too busy. Number four, I'm not very interested. Number five, I've tried before and it never really worked. Number six, I don't see the benefit of working on it that hard. Number seven, I read the Bible every day. Why do I need to memorize it? Number eight, I don't know what translation to use. Number nine, I might become prideful. Number 10, I don't know how to do it. No understatement whatsoever. Hearing a brother in this church recite the Sermon on the Mount from memory to a group of men changed my life forever. Do you want fellowship with God? Do you want to know Him? Do you want completion in Christ? Do you want Christ's joy made full in you? A way to get there is prayer-bathed memorization of the Word of God. It is an expression, an expression pardon me, of continual devotion. So that when you're lying in your bed at night, you can't fall asleep, waves of anxiety come, desires for the things of the world come, and your mind, you can't control everywhere your mind is going, you feel tossed about on the waves of the sea, you have some place to turn. You should memorize large chunks of the Bible. Fourth, discipleship. Because you need it, and they need it too. Discipleship because you need it. I praise God that there are lots of people in this church who desire the sort of relationship where they could be fed by a saint further on in the walk of sanctification and the journey toward God. You should want that. You should want to be poured into. I have no but. Yes, I'm so thankful that there are, that, that desire is in many of us. 
but also because they need it too. I pray to God that he would give us more of this perspective. I have something that I call a spiritual radar, really kind of hokey phrase, but it's fallible, it's not perfect, but it means when you start to get a vision for interpreting the world, not based on how things are going for you and how people are relating to you and how you can be blessed. That's good, we need that. I have no but for that. Also, we need the outward-looking spiritual radar such that we become aware of how other people are. What do they need? Christ said, consider the needs of others, Paul said it, more important than your own. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's patterned on Christ's humility laying his life down for us. Don't you want to be used for another brother or sister in this church to put a rock under their feet so that when the rains fall, the floods come, the wind blows and slams in their life, they have a place to stand? Discipleship, that's a way to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Fifth and finally on applications, two counterfeits of genuine, true devotion to the apostles' teaching. The first one is the bodiless church, head only. Bodiless, just a head. It means there's no application. You have correct truth. It's right. You're not wrong about it. You have the truth in your mind, but there's no application. There's no life. You know that the more truth you know, the more you will be held accountable for how you live. That principle's plain. The more light you get, the more accountability you bear. So what do we do if we as a church, or we as a congregation, or we as individuals feel that we have tremendous doctrinal correctness and are lacking in how to obey, how to apply, how to live, As I've been saying, there's a king on the throne of grace who takes sinners. We sang the song, come boldly to the throne of grace. Sinners are welcome there because sin has been made purified by Christ. His blood is shed. Take that concern to Christ. You should make a habit of confessing things you're ashamed of to other people. People who are confidants, people who love you, people who are trustworthy, but somebody. And you can pray for grace. Or the beheaded church. This would be a church with no head. They have only a body. There is no doctrine. There's lots of doing, lots of scurrying. Lots of, sometimes, good things going on, but there's no doctrine. There's no anchor. There's no root. There's nothing holding it all together. It's just chaos. And it's not based on the eternal, weighty truth of God. So we planted tomatoes this year in our garden, little raised garden. Planted eight of them, two of them. One of them is dead, dead. One of them is almost dead. The one that's dead, dead, you started seeing warning signs a long time before it was dead, dead. And the first thing you see is the leaves start to turn yellow. It's producing a lot of fruit. It's a little small yellow cherry tomato plant in our yard. It was about six feet tall. It looked great. It was really, I was pretty excited about it. And so it's producing all these little yellow cherry tomatoes. They're all coming out and the leaves start to turn yellow. And I I kill tomatoes every year, so I know what that means. This is not going to go well. The leaves start to turn yellow. The leaves start to turn brown and get crispy. And then they start, I I start taking them off. I was told I was supposed to do that. But it still keeps producing tomatoes. 
The plant is in shambles, and it's full of yellow cherry tomatoes. The fruits are everywhere. They're all over the place, and we're picking them. Noel's out there picking them. Every day, there's more ripe yellow cherry tomatoes out there, but you can tell something's not right. There is no foundation. Something's wrong with the roots. The plant is dying, regardless of what fruits are there. That's what a beheaded church is like. There may be fruit for a while. There may be activity. It may be impressive. But if there's no doctrine, if there's no truth of God, if there's no devotion to the teaching of the apostles, if Christ is not known according to his word, no matter what all the good activities are, it's going to fall apart like that tomato. So in summary, we know God through the truth contained in the word of God especially revealed in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He saves sinners to himself because he laid his life down on their behalf and is alive today. Having been raised from the dead, he now sits, not in theory, the man Christ Jesus sits now at the right hand of the throne of God with all authority in heaven and on earth, calling a people to himself and sanctifying that people. We know him according to his word, according to the truth. The church, this church included, is built on that truth. We have to have it as our foundation. If we don't have the truth of God, if we stray, if we are misled, if we deviate, if we drift, Hebrews 2, from the truth of God, we will become, we will be no better than a social club, a support group. He will spew us out of his mouth. We must continually devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. It is the way... We seek the face of God. It's the way we avoid eternal destruction. It's the way that we know how to truly love one another in God's divine application of the truth. To God be the glory in the church and this church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we do need your truth. We need your word. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need it illumined to our minds. We need it applied to our hearts. We need it fleshed out in our actions. We need to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory as the radiance of your glory. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No man comes to the Father but through me, Christ said. So Lord, we praise you for the Son of God through whom we know you. We praise you that we know him in the eternal word of God. And we pray that this church would be made a church pleasing to you in all the ways that you want us to be, including those in this little paragraph. We pray that you'd cause us to be a people pleasing to you as we continually devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We pray you'd apply it to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.